Well, as you can see from the screen, we are continuing to go through 1 Corinthians. Our habit is that we go through it passage by passage, which means when we come across a harder passage, we don't get to skip over it. And of course, you saw that's what happened last week, right? Uh, Pastor Jared talked about a passage in 1 Corinthians that talks about women and head coverings and be silent in church. What? And like, listen, that is a passage that most pastors would like to skip right over and would never touch. And so I just give it to Jared. <laughs> I feel like that's the way I roll, right? Uh, anyway, it's not really how, it's a lot more complicated than that. But uh, I'll tell you what, I'm so glad that he drew that passage though. Uh, in, because man, he did a fantastic job handling a very difficult, pay. yeah, you can clap, it was good. Um, handled a tough passage of scripture, did a great job. Now granted, I understand that not everybody who comes to our church might have liked that. I understand that. Uh, What I want to do at Redemption Chapel is that our pastors preach the scriptures in such a way that if people don't like it, they find themselves disagreeing with God, not with us. So that we're just the mailman. We just deliver the mail. We didn't write it. Uh, And so that's who I want to be. Now, I I realize some of you might still be upset about it. If so, I would really welcome you to email me in September. (laughs) Do with that what you will. Thank you, Austin. Have fun, brother. (laughs) Anyway, all right. So we are going through passage by passage through this book. And the very next passage is this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So here Paul is being very clear that he is not commending the Corinthian church. As we've gone through the letter, does it seem like he's been commending them at all? It seems like unnecessary, right? Like the whole letter seems like, hey church, for the love of everything holy and decent, stop being a dumpster fire. Like th- that's pretty much the letter, right? Now here, granted, there was like this one little island of commendation in chapter 11, verse 2. And so now Paul's being very, very clear. We're back to the smackdown. So we're back at it. And the reason why is because Paul has heard of a problem there in the church. And what is it? It's that when they come together as a church to celebrate, uh, says the Lord's Supper, we call it communion. When they do that, it is a dumpster fire. It's a bad thing that's going on there. So what's happening is something, like we have an echo of this in our culture where we have these holidays that we celebrate by tradition, but we've lost the meaning of them, right? Religious holidays like Christmas and Easter, right? 
don't take Christ out of Christmas. You've got to remember what it is, right? And, and it's not about the Easter bunny. You're, you're forgetting the meaning, right? And then there's Thanksgiving because it's not about a meal. Well, yeah, that one's about a meal. That's, just, that's about a meal. Uh, but, but then, you know, there's a, like Memorial Day and Veterans Day and we forget, we confuse those, we lose the meaning. And then there's Labor Day and nobody knows what that's about. <laughs> that's just lost. And yet we still celebrate them. We go through the motions, but we've lost the meaning. So that's what's happening with communion. Now what's odd about it is Christianity is new. And so they lost the meaning like hard and fast on that one. They, and they just, they lost it in their mess. So what was happening? So in verses 21 to 22, you start to see that what they were celebrating was, was more of a meal, not just like a cracker and a sip of juice type of thing. Okay, There was a whole meal. And that was a thing in not all the early church, but a lot of the early churches. Uh, it was called the agape feast or agape meal. Agape means love in Greek. So like it's the, and so they would come together and celebrate this meal and at the end of it, celebrate communion. Now, it's understandable how that got started because after all, remember pa- uh, Jesus, when he started communion, that was in the midst of the Passover feast. It was launched in the midst of a big old meal. And then he said, and here's my, the bread and the cup and do this in remembrance of me. So that's how it started out. So the early church started it in this agape feast. By the way, I think that's how the church potluck started. Like 2,000 years ago, that's how it got it. And I love it. Listen, just somebody make funeral potatoes and I'm happy. Like those things are delicious. Love it. Church potluck is a good thing. And so then at the end of the church potluck, basically, then they would celebrate communion. Again, maybe you call it the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. If you grew up Catholic, you call it Eucharist, whatever. But that's what it's talking about. So fairly early on in church history, though, the agape feast started to disappear. That, that stopped. And actually, it didn't totally go away. But it, it just got separated into two distinct things. On the one hand, we still have the church potluck, right? We got our wing fest coming up. Like, we do that. Or maybe you eat as a community group, okay? And then once a month, our church celebrates communion together. Some churches do it more or less. That's not the point. But so these things are just separated now instead of tied together. And it's okay. You can do them together. You can do them separate. Actually, the meal is not even com- commanded. Communion is. That, that's the commanded part that we got to keep, want to keep. Okay. So that's what's going on. So there's this meal setting. You got to know that because what I'm about to say will make a little bit more sense. Because th- the problem is not that they ate a meal, um, but so... To understand their cultural context, the church then would have included both slaves and servants and poor people and rich people. And as a church, they came together to share, share a meal. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> Wish it were. It wasn't. It was a dumpster fire. So here's what happened. So the, the slaves and servants would have had to finish up work before then they could leave and rush over to church and get there late. The rich people didn't have to do that, so they showed up on time early, right? And, and they ate all the food. So then the rich people went away full. The poor people who could really use a meal went away hungry. See what's going on in the passage? That, that's what's going on. Oh, and they also sat separated. Paul said there's divisions among you. That was literal. Like they sat divided. Because after all, they didn't have a church building, So they would meet as a church at the largest house owned by somebody in the congregation. 
Okay, but, but like still there's limits on that house. So the rich person that owned that house and their rich friends would get there first and they'd sit down in the dining room and fill that up. When the poor people got off work and finally got there, there's no room in the dining room. So they would sit out in the courtyard. Rich Christians in the dining room, poor Christians out in the courtyard. So feel that? And when we do a church potluck, there's like that common buffet table that we all file past and get what we want, right? Funeral potatoes, I'm just, I'm just saying. Um, so, so you file past and get those things, but that's not the way it rolled back then. Everybody would bring something and then you'd go sit down together. So all the rich people sit together and they're eating their filet mignon, right? And then the poor people show up and they're in the courtyard and they eat... Wait, did anyone bring anything? I don't have anything. And one woman brings out a purse and says, well, I have a graham cracker. I guess we can break that up and share it. Feel that? Feel that? That's what's going on in that environment. Now, you're shocked by that. And the only reason you're shocked by that is because you grew up in a post-Christian society. But in our post, it's still informed by Christian ethics and ideals and experiences and expectations. And so you hear that and you go, that's wrong. Okay, you got to understand in their culture, that's just how dinner parties went. People would have one dinner party, invite people they knew, both poor and rich, and the rich people would be in the house with good food and wine, and the poor people would be in the courtyard with lesser fare. That's just their culture. So now they become Christians, and they're going to have a dinner party of a Christian as Christians, and that's just the way you do it, right? That's just the way we roll, and they hit repeat. After all, what good business for a church? Because you want to make sure the rich people are happy and comfortable because they can give more. And the poor people can't give as much, so we don't care about them. Feel that? And Paul says, nope, don't like that. Not in the church. Not in the church. (laughs) Oh, and, and I wonder if you caught this little tidbit. People were getting drunk at church. Okay, so it's not just that you have a drinking problem and you should be coming to our Thursday night meeting. Okay, it's not just that. It's not just that you get drunk occasionally and you show up to church a little buzzed or maybe hungover. No, it's that you go to church to get drunk there on the communion wine. You're getting drunk at church. It's such a dumpster fire. It's so bad that Paul... Hints and says, you know, it would be better if you guys didn't even meet. Folks, could you imagine if Jesus showed up to Redemption Chapel and he said, yeah, uh, you know what? Why don't you guys just stop meeting because it's doing more harm than good? Oh, my heart. What that means is that going to church isn't necessarily good. It depends what you do when you get there. And so when you get there, do you truly pour out your heart in worship before God? Do you serve? Do you fellowship? Do you care about the people around you? Do you give? Do do you lean in? Do you humbly learn from the Word of God in moments like this and, and adapt your life to it such that your life is different the next week? Or, or do you show up, but you bring in arrogance and spiritual pride and you're judging people and you're criticizing the sermon and you're complaining about the temperature and you're complaining about the volume and, you're co- and, and, and this is church, but, but you go every week. <laughs> Yippee! Great, great. 
So what's going on is they are doing a ritual of religion, but they've lost the heart. They've lost the spirit. They've lost lordship of Jesus to the degree that when they celebrate communion, Paul says, yes, stop calling that the Lord's Supper because that doesn't belong to Jesus. That belongs to you. That's your mess. Quit blaming that on Jesus. Man. So what Paul's going to do then in now you got the historical context of what's going on, okay? What he decides to do next is give them kind of a refresher course about communion. And see if these verses sound at all familiar to you. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Does that sound familiar? That's the, that's the passage we read every month when we celebrate communion. And we go to that passage because I think it is the most clear and concise summation of what communion is. This is what Jesus did. Paul says, this is what I deliver to the church. This is what we do right here, people. That's what we do. Now, I want you to understand the gravity of communion. So I want, let me tell you this. One of the cool ways to look at the entirety of the Bible is that it is a story of five meals. And here they are. The first meal in the Bible is when Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means it's a meal that is eaten in defiance of God. It's sin and it's depravity and it's the fall and the curse comes in and everything is broken from that meal. Now the second meal is Passover. This is where God promises, I will come and I will fix it. And so the Jews, this is a repeated meal, over and over, looking forward to the future when the Messiah would come, the Lamb of God would come and set all things right. He would take away the sin of the world. The third meal is the Last Supper. You see it's the hinge in the middle there. And this is where Jesus took that Passover and he reinterpreted it into communion. And he said, this is my body, and this is my blood. He reinterpreted it into communion. Why? Because the lamb was right there. The Messiah was right there. He finally came. First time. First coming. So the, the fourth meal then is communion. This again is a repeated meal. Okay? This has been celebrated over and over and over by Christians around the globe and for thousands of years. The church has been doing this. Repeated meal. And it, too, is looking forward. It's looking forward to the return of our king. Did, did you notice it said in there, uh, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's looking forward to that, which is the fifth meal. The fifth meal, when you, the last book in the Bible is the book of Revelation, and it talks in there that eternity, like eternal paradise is launched by the wedding supper of the Lamb, by a big old feast and meal, in which case we get the face of our God back 
Finally. And paradise is inaugurated and launched by that fifth meal. Now, I go through that because one of the things I want you to catch, you see in there like communion's kind of a big deal. That's why it's so important. That's why we do it over and over. We're, we're celebrating something. And so if it's such a big deal, then what we have to ask is, what should communion look like? In fact, looking is a really good thing to talk about because communion is all about looking. It's about looking back, looking up, looking around, and looking forward. Okay, let me explain. Communion is looking back at what Christ has done. Remember how we just sang what he's done? What he's done? Okay, it's all about looking back. It's a remembrance of the gospel. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We're looking back on what Christ did, that his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us. And what that did is it launched a new covenant. Jesus said, this is a new covenant in my blood. New covenant, what's that mean? The old covenant was this. You work really hard at the rules and maybe, just maybe, God will love you. Oh, but also, um, none of you will work hard enough so it'll never work and it'll never be finished. It's works. It's the old covenant. The new covenant in Jesus' blood is Jesus worked sufficiently because he's God. He fulfilled all the rules. He then died in our place because we never fulfilled the rules. And therefore, because of what Christ has done, it is finished. It's grace. Jesus did it, therefore God loves me. That's the new covenant. It's beautiful. It's grace. So, a big part of communion is remembering the gospel every month. We're, we're, it's a symbolic reminder of the gospel. We look back. But also we look up. When you celebrate communion here every month, I want to make sure in that moment you connect with God. You go to Him and you engage with Him and you pour out your heart before Him. You thank Him and you worship Him. And as you do, please celebrate. Communion is a celebration with God. It is not a funeral service. Okay, yes, Jesus died. Spoiler alert. The tomb's empty. He rose. And as soon as he rose, it became a celebration. That's what's good. The reason I'm hammering this is at many churches, when they celebrate communion, you would think somebody died. It's a funeral service feel to it. Like uh, You would think Jesus is still in the tomb. And mourning and grief was appropriate for three days. And then Jesus rose. And when he rose, the church celebrated. We cheer at that. We, we're, we're so, imagine, if you will, that your best friend dies. You're going to be sad, right? You're going to be grieving and mourning. You're broken. You're hurting. Okay? Okay, imagine this. Jesus raises her from the dead. Now how do you feel? You're mourning or are you celebrating? Oh, it's better than that. For some freaky reason, it's, it's an analogy. You'll get it. But, but because of that... Not only did she rise from the dead, but all of us have salvation eternally. We're all going to rise from the dead. You understand? That's victory. When our team wins, we don't, we don't get sad. We celebrate. Jesus won. We won. Communion is a celebration. And so when you look up, you go to God and you celebrate. 
So in communion, we look back and we look up, but we also look around. That passage that we look at every month when we celebrate communion, there's something that's lost on you as English speakers, okay? Everything in there, with one exception, but it's like 99% plural. So all the, the verbs are second person plural. All the you is y'all, right? It's, it's plural. And what we realize from that is that communion assumes that we do it together as a church. I don't like the idea of one person celebrating or two persons celebrating while we all watch. No, it's supposed to be a family affair. Communion, it's about communing, not just with God, but with each other. Because we have been adopted together into one family. Communion is a family meal. It's a family affair. So we should have part of communion that's looking around. This is my family, and I love them. You got to look around. And then lastly, we look forward. We look forward because it ends by talking about the return of Jesus Christ. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Our king is coming back for us, and we're just anticipating it. And we remember that in communion, that our hope is not in this broken world. Our hope is that our king comes back and takes us home. That's our hope. So communion then is about looking back, looking up, looking around, and looking forward. And I want you to keep that in mind in a couple weeks when we celebrate communion. But for right now, uh, remember the, the passage really isn't about communion. It's about screwing it up. That's what's going on. And the irony is this. That as we look back, listen, communion is all about Jesus Christ selflessly sacrificing his love out of, uh, uh, his life out of love for his brothers and sisters. And then we're, the church in Corinth is like, oh, hey, let's celebrate that with greed and gluttony and drunkenness. Great, great. That's, that makes total sense, right? So Paul is just scratching his head and saying, what are you doing? You obviously don't understand what communion is all about. It's not the Lord's Supper you are celebrating. You're a dumpster fire. So he's going to go right back to trying to sort that mess out. And we'll pick it up again in verse 27. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are not, excuse me, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Does that sound like heavy stuff? God is serious about this. There's judgment and discipline going on for the church in this. Now, one thing I want you to catch. There would be a very big mistake from this to interpret that to say that all illness 
is the judgment of God specifically on an individual they must have sinned. No, 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 no. Listen, sometimes you're sick because we all live in a broken, fallen world and there's sickness and disease. There's accidents. There's stuff that happens. Sometimes that's all it is. Sometimes what happens is that your sin and your shame manifest themselves physiologically because you're all twisted up inside and, and doctors and therapists are coming to understand this more and more these days that the body keeps the score. And so the way you got to sort some stuff out internally because it's messing you up. That's it sometimes. Oh, and then there's this stuff. That sometimes it's this, that yes, God at times does specifically, intentionally discipline. And sometimes that means sickness and even death. Wow. In this case, people are getting sick and dying because of this. That's a big deal. And we don't like that. Like nobody reads this and goes, I like this passage, right? No, we don't like that. We don't like that. So, so we have objections and we say things like, well, wait a minute. God can't do that because God owes me. And the reason God owes me is because I go to church faithfully. Well, okay. I go to church semi-regularly. Okay, monthly. I watch online because it's not convenient. What a, you know, like, so, but, but I go to church. Uh, now listen, I, I'm not going to inconvenience myself. I don't really serve and I don't give and um, I don't love my brothers and sisters and, and get involved, um, not in community. But, but, uh, but here's what I do. I, I, I get my cracker and sip of juice once a month and therefore God owes me the goodies. Turns out God is way more serious than that and he's way more committed to your growth than that. Or we object and we say, wait, 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 time out. I thought it was all about grace, pastor. I thought it was about grace. Oh, it is. And it's incredibly, incredibly gracious that God claims you as his kid. And as a good, loving father, he ain't raising spoiled brats. And so he brings in discipline because he's committed to your good and to your growth. That's gracious of God to be a good father. And even when it goes ultimate in discipline and he snuffs you out and takes you home, even then he takes you home. That's grace. You don't deserve that. But there's no sense in the ones that died, they went home to heaven to be with Jesus. Not because of them, but because of Jesus, right? So they didn't go to hell. That's grace. Verse 32 is where it says that God does this so that they would not be condemned with the world. Oh yeah, it's very, very gracious of God. So we are therefore justified by what Jesus does, not by what we do, not even by giving food to poor people. That's true. But once you become a Christian, there is certainly the expectation that when you are adopted by God, when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life, that that starts to leak out of you a little bit. Oh, I love ragweed. That's good stuff. Anyway, so it's supposed to start to leak out of you and more and more and more. And if it doesn't leak out of you, then you've got two options. Your first option is that you're not really a Christian and you never were. That you have just been involved in one of the world religions, this one's called Christianity, and you've been going through some motions and that yippee. So that's, you're just not really a Christian. But the second option for you is this, you are a Christian, which means you belong to God as his child, he loves you, and he will discipline you. Those are your two options. 
There is no third option. There's no third option that I'm going to get one over on God. I'm going to pull the wool over his eyes because I got an oyster cracker and a sip of juice. And somehow God's on the hook to just give me good things. There's no third option. So when I hear that stuff, I go, okay, so God disciplines. That sounds heavy. Hey, tell me how to avoid that. How do we stay out of that, that water? Okay, well, it says in there, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Okay, so all you have to do when the Holy Spirit is prompting you and convicting you and you're feeling that, just respond to the Holy Spirit. Judge yourself in that moment and repent and confess and we're all good. God's not looking for perfection. God's looking for humility and repentance and growth over time. It's progress, not perfection. But if you respond to the Lord with a stubborn heart and you don't judge yourself, God says, okay, I'll take over. And that's where discipline comes in. And that is no bueno. You're not going to like that. So we want to avoid discipline. That's one thing we've got to look at. Another thing we have to look at is, okay, so what's it mean then to take communion in an unworthy manner? That's in verse 27 there. What is that? And I've got to be honest with you that a lot of crummy teaching comes in on that verse. And a lot of pastors have taught that what that means is that if you take communion while you're in sin, God's coming at you. Like, like somehow if I'm in sin and I eat that communion cracker, I'm going to choke and die in the moment. I, you know, like, it's crazy. But here's the thing. We're all in sin. <laughs> We're all in sin. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died. That's why Jesus rose. That's why we have the gospel. That's why we have communion. Communion assumes that sinners are taking it. You understand when Jesus launched communion, he served it to 12 idiots, right? These were the 12 men who would betray him, abandon him, deny him. And he gave it to them. And it was for them. Communion is for sinners. So here's the good news. If you don't feel close to God, if you feel steeped in sin, if you feel like you're not a mature Christian, the good news is this. It's the gospel. Jesus died in your place to become your God, to adopt you back into his family. He ran to you. You can run to him. Communion is for you. Celebrate it. So that's what it doesn't mean. Then, then what does it mean to not take communion in an unworthy manner? It means two things. Number one, don't forget that this passage uh, is about communion. And communion is not only about looking back and up and forward, but it's about looking around. Right? So this passage that we're looking at today begins and ends saying, wait for each other. Which means your focus in communion is not just on myself and feed me and take care of me and my religion and my needs. No, my, my focus is also on my brothers and sisters seated around me that I would truly love them. It's about fellowship, not just some religious ritual. So to do communion in an unworthy way is to forget that communion is about communing not only with God but with the body of Christ around me. Don't do that. 
Love your brothers and sisters, all of them, particularly the ones who are different from you. That's what they were messing up. Second thing, the way they were doing it unworthily. Uh, Unworthy communion means perverting Christianity into a religion of rituals instead of a life-changing relationship with God himself. So instead of looking back and looking up and looking around and looking forward, what, what, they, uh, what, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to get that little oyster cracker and that shot of juice and then I'm good with God. It's all religion. It's no relationship. That's unworthy. I want you to understand this. This passage is damning to the idea that if I just go through some religious rituals, specifically baptism and communion, that therefore I can act however I want and God is obligated to give me some magical protection. Evidently not. Evidently not. I mean, after all, folks, what do we expect? What do you you expect? Like, we're going to ignore the lordship of Jesus Christ. We're not going to love Jesus. We're not going to serve the kingdom. We're not going to love each other. We're not going to grow in Jesus. And God's going to say, well, that's okay, because you had that cracker and that little shot of juice. We're good. No. No. Notice what's going on in this passage is that God is judging the church for their practice of Christianity. That's wild. Don't miss that. In fact, so that you catch it, here's a couple statements. God doesn't want your religious habits. He wants your repentant hearts. God doesn't want spiritual rituals from you. He wants a spiritual revival in you. And God doesn't just want you to go to church. He wants you to act like the church. And so it's not about whether you do communion right. It's about whether you do Christianity right. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on. So I want to end with a few questions uh, for you to think about this week. And here they are. Number one. Are you dabbling in religious rituals while expecting magical protection from God? Is that your Christianity? Like God loves you way too much for that. He wants you to have the real thing. I want you to think about that one this week. Secondly, does your Christianity look and smell like Jesus? Because in Corinth it didn't. But does it? Like, so quit leveraging the church to do the business of the world. And we do that. Like, the business of the world is selfishness and self-promotion and complaining and criticism and judgment and gossip and greed. And are you just being the world while sitting in the church? Like, so for example, let's say you serve back in Kids Zone. I hope you do. That's a great thing. And if you do, man, you're a good Christian. And meanwhile, while you're back there, you're an absolute jerk. That's not it. That's not it, right? That's not, and by the way, that's a big caution for pastors right there. A lot of pastors live that out too. So does it look and smell like Jesus? And then thirdly, do you embrace your Christian sisters and brothers despite our other differences? Because that was a big... Remember, they're sitting divided. And yes, are, are there 
divisions among us, differences, sure. Sure, there, there absolutely are. But when we come together as the church, our union in Jesus Christ eclipses all that. And we're one. We're one family. So we have gender differences, racial differences, age differences, socioeconomic status differences, it's politics, different sports teams. Again, I'm called as a Christian to love Wolverines and Steelers fans. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and that one hurts a lot at times. <clears throat> and that's hard. But while we can joke around about that one, that one's actually really easy. Uh, and we'll, we'll see Steelers jerseys and Browns jerseys sitting next to each other, worshiping. It's beautiful. It's a great thing. That one's easy. The ones that aren't as easy, though, uh, things like politics. Um, can you overcome the, the political differences, the person sitting next to you and just love them as your sister, your brother in Christ? Racial differences do not, uh, I mean, we celebrate our different ethnic heritages, but at the same time, what we don't do is we don't divide over that. We embrace that, and unfortunately, the church is so divided over that. And on and on it goes. And so what I want you to do this week is I want you to think through these things because I want to make sure you have the real thing and you're not just going through religious rituals. Let me pray for that. <clears throat> Father in heaven, as we have prayed already, uh, sang already about what he's done, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you so much for the remembrance of it in communion. Just thank you so much for the church that you've given to us. And oh, Father, may we never be in the position that Jesus would walk in here and say, why don't you just stop? But may we do it right. May we walk with you uprightly, love you, love the people around us, serve, give. May we have the real thing. May we never think that somehow by going through some religious ritual that we're magically okay with you. May it all be about truly loving you and walking with you and being changed by you and being different in this world. And I pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.